1: Kathy Vosjancik joins us now, head U.S. financial market economist at Oxford Economics. Kathy, you've had a few minutes to go over this one. Your reaction, please.
2: Yeah, John. Uh, Well, it it did come in a touch higher uh, than expected. And uh, does it change things materially? I I think it just keeps um, pressure on the Federal Reserve. Um, This is a very difficult spot for them uh, where seeing inflation run far above, you know, what they expected in the target. Um, and yes, there's some signs that maybe we'll get easing in the headline number right going forward in energy prices. But still the core number, what I'm looking at, up half a percent, almost five percent year on year core. That is, is definitely going to keep the heat on the Fed.
3: How much can it rise and how much do you need it to fall for the Fed to feel like things are under control?
2: Well, our view is that um, it's going to continue to stay hot and sticky through the first quarter. Um, and you're not going to really get some reprieve until you know, the second quarter. But even then, it's going to remain elevated. Um, I think if you see moderation, if you do see the year-on-year rate, let's say, gap down a full percentage point or so, it, it looks that way in Q2, then the Fed can take a little comfort there and maybe wait a bit. Um, But it's certainly going to be difficult because we're seeing more and more of the Fed members becoming a bit more worried, right, about inflation and less so about the labor market.
3: What do you think is appropriate then if it does remain hot and sticky, as you've been saying, through the first quarter? What's appropriate in terms of Fed action?
2: Well, we think they should be patient. It's going to be difficult, but we do think they're going to need to be patient because the mix of things, you're seeing growth likely to decelerate now fourth quarter nearly eight percent so very hot economy as well but we think it's going to slow in q1 and don't forget that we have this upsurge in COVID, which is going to hurt the economy um and we have to see how that affects inflation but if we're right and inflation comes down it should give the fed a little bit of patience uh, but we still see them you know raising rates no later than september of this year
4: are we going to start seeing more material wage inflation to keep up with the actual inflation that we're seeing
2: well, that, that is the critical um, point to, to focus on, frankly. Um, if um, you start to see wages rise because workers say, hey, we're paying a lot more uh, for items, goods and services, and we need higher wages. And if companies accommodate that, then we get into that price wage spiral that we've, you know, watching and everyone's um, concerned about. But right now we're not quite at that point. Um, we have to wait and see, unfortunately, see the data Um, indications are right now for us is that the labor force participation rates rising, right? People are being pull back into the the labor force. If supply comes on, that helps temper some of the wage gains.
4: Well, and a lot of the reason when I, I've spoken to other economists that I say, how can consumption still be hanging in there when consumers are being faced with this kind of inflation when you're not getting the commensurate wage increases is that there's a ton of savings that have been built up over the course of the pandemic. Those are starting to be drawn down now. Is there a risk that the inflation persists beyond where those savings are going to last and we start to see a serious hit to consumption.
2: That's right. Um, you know, and, and most of the, the, you know, over two trillion of savings is really skews to um, high income households. So um, we're going to wear down the uh, ability, the propensity for consumers to spend. And that should be, you know, help put the brakes on inflation. Absolutely.
1: Kathy, just quickly then, let's round this one out. Are you confident this morning, confident enough to say that this is as high as it gets? This is as bad as it gets.
2: We, we think it gets a little worse, unfortunately, the year-on-year rate. Uh, we don't really see that peaking, especially the core, until maybe February. So we've had a little bit more upward thrust there, and, and especially on the service side, right? And again, I look at the numbers, core commodities, core goods, 9.4% year-on-year. Core services, though, are 34 That's also
1: putting upward pressure. Kathy, just wonderful. Cathy Bosjancic there of Oxford Economics.
3: After getting the fastest read in the CPI print going back to 1982, and we've been talking all morning with people who are saying inflation is a scary thing. It is a scary thing for asset valuations. It is a scary thing for the Federal Reserve. It is a scary thing for politicians hoping to get reelected. And Stephen Dover has a message for them. Maybe it's a good thing. He is Franklin Templeton, chief market strategist and head of Franklin Templeton Investment Institute. Please explain, Stephen, how we can take a look at this consumer, consumer price increase and really see what equities are seeing, which is brighter skies.
5: Well, when we look at in, well, I'm not really arguing that inflation is a good thing. I'm arguing that inflation is a signal um, and that inflation is a plural and that there's a lot of different ways we can look at inflation. So what can we learn from these inflation numbers and how does that help us when we're making our um, investment decisions? And this inflation is very, is going, we, we are in an economy right now that is being reshaped. And we're not going to go back to where we were in 2019. It's going to look different as we go forward. And part of the signaling that's going to change our economy and help us uh, reconfigure it going forward are these inflation numbers. So what's coming out of these inflation numbers uh, is that we clearly need more workers. We need to increase our productivity, that we're having a shift in where our economy is hot or not. If we look under the hood on these numbers, we'll see that inflation is much higher For example, in the Midwest, in places where people are moving um, as they work from home, as as our economy changes, um, that we're going to need more CapEx, which looks like it's going to happen, to increase productivity. Companies are going to have to look, if we're looking at increases in labor costs going forward, which we almost certainly are, companies are going to have to look at ways to increase productivity. CapEx is likely to increase. So all that saying that, um, yes. Um, um we've had a miss uh, in terms of inflation has been higher than it is, but let's look at it from what it signals a perspective and where we have opportunities.
6: And so, like you said, if, you know, companies are going to face uh, labor cost pressures, they certainly already have, you know, if they're going to need to increase CapEx, how do you translate that into a portfolio? I mean, does that lend itself to large caps or how do you view that?
5: You have to look at companies that are able to transition their pricing through um, ultimately uh, to the customer and so keep their profit margins up. I think that we're in a very interesting uh, place for the equities market right now in that um, companies seem to be able to pass through their prices because interest rates, despite this inflation number, haven't risen. So it's a little bit of a Goldilocks um, place for stocks right now. We have earnings growth, that earnings growth in other inflationary periods. When we look back you know, where inflation was this high before, 40 years ago, rates were also very high. And that offset, um, that offset the earnings because companies had to pay higher rates. But that's not happening right now. We have low rates. They're not, they're not hurt even by a modestly rising bond market. So that's generally positive for equities. Uh, particularly those equities that are going to um, the, the opening trade, uh, s- the stocks that are going to do better as the economy starts to open up.
3: So, uh, Stephen, we've talked a lot about uh, equities and how it, they probably are going to continue to perform well. What does this mean for the 60-40 shift, given that we do expect growth to lead to a hiking Fed and possibly a longer-term positive look?
5: Well, I think we have to really look at that 60-40 split. So right now, our view would be probably to be overweight equities, which we've been for a a period of time now, um, and underweight fixed income, but not moving away from fixed income. I think on that 40% of uh, of fixed income, you want to probably focus on yield or the yield advantage, spread products, if you will. Within that area, you might want to look at corporate debt, particularly focusing on sectors that could be upgraded, we're arguing that there is going to continue to be growth, and so um, you can get fairly significant growth uh, with upgrades. You look at bank loans. Emerging markets look, um, look like there's some good opportunities there, and we're also positive on some municipals, again, looking for upgrades. My point being, you can invest in fixed income that isn't quite so dependent on changes uh, within interest rates. Don't just focus on duration. And then also... Uh, we're more positive on alternative investments, particularly private credit, which has had amazing growth, um, has a good yield advantage, and uh, and and real estate, particularly private real estate. A lot of opportunities right now in the industrial space, as uh, as we have to have warehouses and that type of thing uh, for uh, electronic or or online uh, shopping, um, and we have a gargantuan underweight or or we have a gargantuan shortage in housing right now. We need, in the United States, about 1 million units a year, and it's going to take a while to catch up with that. Not only that, there's a terrible dislocation as people move away from the big urban centers and, and to other places uh, as they work from home. So a lot of opportunity there as well.
6: Stephen, does does crypto count as an alternative asset or not yet?
5: I think that it's, it's very interesting that um, I think the main line Um, investment managers, investment allocators haven't got to the point where they put that in as a crypto asset. But clearly it doesn't have um, the the same correlation uh, to other assets. And that, you know, by definition does, yes, make it an alternative asset.
3: How far do you have to stretch? How much out of your comfort zone in order to get returns that people are looking for to survive after they retire?
5: Well, we want to be careful with that. Um, we we want to be careful to not be in a crowded trade, uh, meaning when everybody starts to go in a direction, even if they're right, it gets overpriced. And that's where I would be cautious about the rush to, uh, to invest to protect for inflation. Um, University of Michigan uh, outlook for inflation still is over the next 12 months, about 5%. Over the next 5 to 10 years, 3%. That seems reasonable. That seems like what um, what the reserve banks are have been trying to do for a very long period of time. So I don't I, I think that especially those who are uh, towards a retirement age need to be quite careful about going out too far uh, with risk. I think they need to look at their portfolios and really balance that risk. That's why uh, and, and not not go too far into the inflation camp or not go too far away from the inflation camp. Um, so, kind of a a modest portfolio rather than stretching too much.
6: And Steven, I'd love to get your thoughts on junk bonds because the Bloomberg Turnbull had a great story out this week, citing data from Fitch Ratings. Just 10 U.S. high-yield issuers have defaulted this year on a total of about $6.9 billion worth of debt. And there was also a 103-day stretch with zero defaults, which is an all-time long stretch, which is pretty amazing. Curious, you know, when you're examining the fixed income landscape and thinking about risk, where do high-yield U.S. bonds
5: fall? So we definitely look at high-yield, but also uh, bonds that aren't high-yield. You are That was a great article, and yes, um, default rates are way down. We're a little bit more focused on where there might be upgrades, because if you see an upgrade, you can have a significant uh, increase in valuation. The other point I would just make about high-yield is that You need to look at your entire portfolio because high yield is much more correlated with the equity markets, certainly than sovereign debt or or treasuries. And so you want to make sure that you're aware of what risks you have in your portfolio. So if you're overweight equity and overweight high yield, you you have a lot of equity risk in your portfolio. If that's what you want, fine, but you need to be aware of it.
3: Stephen Dover, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your insights. Stephen Dover, Franklin Templeton, chief market strategist and head of the Franklin Templeton Investment Institute. We have been looking at a market that very much has priced in 6.8% consumer inflation.
1: Andy Pecos has, professor and virologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Andy, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you a question on this. <laughs> during on this pandemic, I want to talk about this Omicron variant. And I think this is a really important conversation. If it turns out to be much, much milder, but far more contagious, how do we treat that from a policy perspective? From your standpoint, sir, how do we make that change?
7: It all comes down to hospitalization rates and severe disease rates. Um, there's preliminary data now suggesting that a boost will probably give you a really good immune response that protects against Omicron. And therefore, if that holds true, then the current strategy of getting people boosted uh, should be able to limit our severe disease cases and allow us to keep going without any major changes in what's go in, in our public health. Uh, intervention policies. But, you know, we're far away from that because we're certainly dealing right now with a Delta surge that's really approaching uh, peak levels that we've ever seen here in the U.S. And so we're really in a bit of a pickle here in terms of trying to figure out how to deal with the current Delta as well as prepare for a potential Omicron.
3: There are a lot of issues embedded in there. I want to tease out one idea of quarantining if you're exposed, because that's been highly disruptive, especially for kids who've gone back to school or people going to the workplace. And this is one a big reason why people are worried about bringing people back to the offices how transmissible is somebody who has been inoculated 3 times who let's say gets a breakthrough infection or even twice are they as infectious as an unvaccinated individual
7: uh, the data suggests that you still will be more likely to to not transmit the virus there are certainly some cases out in the literature right now where if someone who's been vaccinated gets a strong infection and has a lot of virus they can transmit. But in the for the for most people, vaccination will reduce the transmission of the of both Delta and we assume now for Omicron um, um, to other individuals. So vaccination still is the route to sort of turn the curve here. I think the thing we really have to think about right now, particularly when it comes to Omicron, is we've seen data Data that's mostly focused on vaccinated people and individuals who are relatively healthy we haven't seen cases of omicron in vulnerable populations the elderly immunocompromised people um, on on cancer therapies it's what Omicron does in those populations that don't have the protection induced by the vaccine that is going to be really important to to judge because if those vulnerable parts of the population are even more sensitive to severe disease with Omicron, then we really have to rethink some of our public health approaches.
3: But Andy, from a public health perspective, just going back to vaccinated individuals, if they are not that uh, contagious, they don't spread the virus, why are they being tested five, six, seven times to travel in any way, shape or form? Why is there still this surveillance and possible uh, quarantining of them if they get exposed and if they get a breakthrough
7: infection? It goes down to the layered approach to limit transmission and limit spread of the virus. So we never wanna rely on one thing. And oftentimes the testing, combined with vaccination status, is used as at least two ways to make sure that we're catching 90 plus percent of people who are potentially infectious. And so that's really the point here uh, when it comes to that strategy. I will say though, that there are better strategies to do the testing rather than our our nasal swab PCRs. Um, antigen testing, at-home testing, these are things that we in the US in particular haven't taken advantage of that could make this whole process of testing and being certain that you can go back to work back to uh, traveling uh, much more easier.
4: Well, obviously in the U S we do have the advantage that we can get access to that testing. If we, if we try hard enough, we also have ample access to vaccinations and booster shots. Whereas a lot of the world doesn't even have a large portion of their population given their initial doses yet. And the WHO is saying, hold the conversation on boosters. We need to focus on getting more of the world vaccinated before we have that conversation. Do you think we're misaligning our priorities
7: yeah, it, 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 it's important to note that a global pandemic requires a global response. And certainly getting more vaccine to other countries has to be a high priority. I realize that there are always interests in terms of protecting our own population to the, to the greatest degree possible. But at the end of the day, Omicron is showing us yet again what we can expect from SARS-CoV-2 if we don't get even better at vaccinating the world. The, The doses that have been given so far to Africa are a great first step, but if you think about the population of Africa and the doses that have been promised, we're still nowhere close to being able to move on that one continent to a level of protection in the population that would help
1: us really reduce the amount of variants that are emerging. Andy, thank you, sir. As always, enjoy the weekend. Andrew Pecos there of Johns Hopkins. joining us on D.C., Andy Blocker, head of U.S. government affairs at Invesco. Andy, you said it would be the nightmare before Christmas. We all want to avoid that. Are we avoiding that, Andy?
8: Well, John, I think we're on the path to do that. A month ago, if you talked to me, I would have said it was going to be the nightmare before Christmas. You had to get government funding done. You had to increase the debt limit. You had to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then still at the same time try to get the bill back better bill. Well, we've gotten bipartisan infrastructure bill. That's in place. We've agreed to fund the government at least till next February, and now we've got a deal on the debt limit, which is probably one of the most important things with respect to the markets. So um, we're in a good path, and now we're going to see when and how we're going to get Build Back Better done.
3: If we don't get Build Back Better by the end of the year, will we ever get it done?
8: Absolutely. I think there's a big chance. I mean, right now, we're like a 25% chance we get it done this year, um, but we're probably... 75% chance it gets done. I think there's a there's a good sense that uh, Democrats want to come together and get that done. It's just a matter of what it looks like right now. And the question is, uh, when will progressives understand that Senator Manchin is only going to go so far and cut the deal? That's what this is about at this time. Right now, we're going through the birdbath this week on the technical things to see which of these provisions can survive that, whether it's immigration, prescription drug pricing, or the EV tax credit. And then from there, we have to go into the substance of things that Senator Manchin and has an issue with, including paid family leave, uh, some of the climate-related issues, and also the extension of the enhanced child tax credit.
3: The reason why I ask, Andy, is because it seems like the more we talk about inflation, the more we get pushback to further stimulus as being inflationary at a time when we don't need that. In fact, we need some curbs, to what we're seeing in terms of how much prices are rising. How does that color the conversation in terms of policy going forward at a time when we hear increasingly protectionist rhetoric from the likes of Janet Yellen and Gina Raimondo?
8: No, I, look, I think you're on to something right there. So first, with respect to inflation, you can expect Senator Manchin to um, capitalize on the announcement today, which we expect a high inflation number to say, hey, let's slow down. He's been saying that for some time. So that's going to interject itself into the Build Back Better debate. But also with respect to what you're talking about, about the protectionist um, angle with trade, I think, yes, this is this is an issue that's out there.
4: Well, let's talk more about inflation, because we've seen the president at least try to be seen attempting to do something about it, tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, trying to do something about supply chains and and fixing chip shortage issues. None of that has really helped to this point, at least American, the American populace doesn't feel that yet. Is Biden's approval reading going to continue to be tied to price pressures?
8: So, Kelly, I think you're on something really important here, um, when we look at inflation, we think at it from a political standpoint and we look at it from a market standpoint. From a market standpoint, we're looking at the fundamentals. We're looking at housing prices, wages, those things that are sticky going for the long term. But politically, it's really, and you've talked about this on the program already, it's gas and groceries. It's what people feel um, in their pocketbooks. Now, the good thing for Biden is that recently um, some of the gas prices have started to tip down. He's going to try to take credit for it with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, that's going to be a temporary hit, if, if anything, but really about the, the, the new um, – so about omicron and fears on that and also some of the um productions increased so it's a lot of these things when we're talking about inflation unfortunately, are out of the president's control, but he has to make it look like he's working on it, and he's doing it, he's doing everything he can, And um, but ultimately, we understand that the economy's so large and, and the macro moves are so big that the federal government really can't drive that.
1: But Andy, what do you make of the current strategy? There's people saying, you know what, we feel this, it doesn't feel good to me, and then you've got the administration saying, but it is good, and I'll tell you why it's good, A, B, C, D, E. Andy, what do you make of that, just that tension between how people feel? And how the administration is turning around and saying, no, this is how you should feel, because actually it's really good. And it's the media who's not covering the data properly.
8: So that's the that's the, the ultimate disconnect that we found in politics, is that you, you have the numbers, you have the economists saying, hey, on a macro level, GDP's up, this or that. But really it's about what people feel every day. And so... Um, as there's an old saying, um, I think Maya Angelou said, people don't, um, they don't, they won't remember what you said, they won't even remember what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. And so uh, whether that's in how you speak to people or what's actually people are feeling each day, that's what's going to drive the decision-making, that's going to drive their mood and it's going to drive the
1: polls. Biggest challenge at the moment for this administration, without a doubt. Andy, thank you, sir, at least domestically. Andy Blocker of Invesco.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.